Welcome back to Women of AV Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her Groucho Marx eyebrows co-host, <laughs> Kathleen Smith, a.k.a. Geeky Planet. How you doing, Deirdre? Better today, right? Better today. Well, and only because the week was so much. There was so much. We have to, we have yeah. to do it. But I read this fantastic article the other day <laughs> mm-hmm. by uh, a lady named Lisa Bush. And Lisa and I follow each other on Twitter. And as soon as I read this article, I thought, I really need to reach out. And, and her name sounded familiar to me. And I go over to Twitter and sure enough, we follow each other. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, I, I knew I knew, I knew I knew the name. And I go to her website and I'm like, I've been here before. I'm like, I have meant to reach out to, to Lisa before. I'm like, I didn't do it really. And so I sent her this really, you know, this really fast uh, message that was like, I meant to do this, you know, call me <laughs> as fast as you can. <laughs> and yeah. She responded to me on Twitter, and then Kathleen and I were supposed to record last night, but everyone in her house took a computer with them and left. (laughs) (laughs) They abandoned me without technology. Right? And so here we were rescheduling for the next day, and then Lisa called me this morning and said, I can totally be available in a half an hour. (laughs) was meant to be. And of course, last night, you let me know about the blog post, so uh, I immediately read it. And as I said before we started recording, was yelling, yes, 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 in my backyard <laughs> at the summer squash and strawberry patch because I was so <laughs> excited about the truth that was in that article. We're so happy to have you with us, Lisa. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this yet, but your post... Uh, from this week is definitely going viral. I know I posted it on Facebook and within a matter of minutes had close to a hundred shares of it already. And the reaction, not only from women, but from men has been resounding. And to, to read comments from men saying, you know, wow, if I was listening to this, I'd not only be a better partner, I'd be a better father. Mm-hmm. Comments like that were were really uh, hitting home with me because I think there's a lot of men in Alberta who are finally getting it too, who are, are finally getting what this government is doing to women, women. and women of all ages. Yeah. <laughs> it's from cradle to grave right now. The attacks this government is lobbing against window, against women. So, uh, Lisa, why don't we start with just a, a brief synopsis of the the work you released this week, and what what finally pushed you to the point that you had to put fingers to keyboard and let Alberta know enough is enough. Well, first of all, thank you, Kathleen and Deirdre, for having me. Um, and on 30 minutes notice, uh, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Um, it's great. It's it's perfect because when you want me to talk about gender equity or double standards with gender, like I need zero advance notice to do that. Um, 
And that's, that's a good question, Kathleen. I don't think it took a lot. I think, as I mentioned in the post, um, women are angry here. Um, I'm seeing that from mothers. I'm seeing that from teachers. I'm seeing that um, ac across the board. And, and not, we're angry and we're kind of at a loss at this point. We're like, we just, we don't know at this point what to do. And so one thing that I have been doing um, since 2019, very specifically, is I've been trying to put my voice out there. So whether it's through blog posts, whether it's through podcasts, whether it's through book publishing, um, whether it's through applying for promotions in my job and going into, you know, administrative work, instead of bearing that anger, as women are often encouraged to do, instead of you know, ignoring it and being grateful and lighting a candle and smiling, I've been putting it into action. And so I, this was something, it was totally off the radar. It was one of those, you pick up your phone at 9am on a Tuesday or, or Wednesday, whenever that happened. And then all of a sudden I, you know, I turned to my husband, I'm like, I need two hours. <laughs> like I have to respond to this. I can't let this go. And when I put it out there and I am a mom of, of two kids right now, um, so to answer your question, I had no idea it was going viral like that, Kathleen, because I tend to post things and then you make lunch, right? <laughs> so now getting uh, back to the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Uh, you're, you're cleaning up the house. So um, when I did post it, and this is kind of four women out there, you know, wondering what to do with this anger, it was very therapeutic. Yes. Um, because it was, it wasn't a rage post. Like this had a page of citation and oh, yeah. resources. Um, but I'm like, I I've done what I needed to do. And now I can go back to living my life. That's how I, I think that's it. a writer's thing because I find that too. I used yes. to, uh, growing up, I would be, I would have things going through my head and I couldn't sleep until I got up, wrote it down and then I could, yeah. right. And then, then it would pass. Um, but I actually wrote something down and I want to, I do want to reiterate a little bit of this with you because while we were talking this morning, I wrote down all roads lead to politics. <laughs> and that was because, like you said, when you started, when you, when you, like your, your area of interest was, was personal wellness for teachers and it ended up. Yes. It led you straight to, then it became political. And I mean, that's obviously, that's what I discovered was everything, everything comes back to the politics of, yeah. and, and it has been shocking, right? This, this entire week has been, um, it's, it started with, it started with the Sturgeon refinery investment. Um, and I, I, I know that we now own 50% of it. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we have all the liability too, which is just not how I would think that we would do business <laughs> or that successful business people do business. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, so we, we sent out $825 million. And then the next day, Taves is like, we're paying nurses too much. What? And it was just so, you know, the dichotomy of we'll invest, right? There's never too yeah. much money if it's for oil and gas, but oh, nurses, after a fucking pandemic, it's too much. 
I, and then I the was, very next day, they're expanding the cabinet. The very next day, they add six more cabinet ministers and appoint an old white ruralite man to the portfolio that is the status of women in this province. They took the they took a racialized woman who tends to lean a little bit more towards center out of that portfolio and gave it to an old white guy who lives in the bush, basically, (laughs) and who thinks that Jason Kenney was literally appointed by God to be premier of Alberta and has said as much. And people wonder why Alberta's women are angry as hell. I want to say something about that anger. Anger is not a bad thing, women. Anger is a good thing if anger motivates you to action. If it makes you stand up and draw your line in the sand and push back. And we need to do that. We've needed to do it pretty much since the day this government came into power, but more so especially now. So, Lisa, uh, we failed to ask you about your um, history. We know you're a writer, of, of course. We know you're working on your next book. So perhaps you could share with our audience a little bit more about you and uh, where you're coming from and your background. Great. Yep. Thanks, Kathleen. So kind of the, the on paper version is that um, I'm a fourth generation educator. So my mom was a teacher. Um, her father was a teacher. My great grandparents um, were in education. And for <laughs> despite that, <laughs> I decided to go into to public education. No, I, I love it. Um, my formal background is in fine arts. I think like a lot of women, my career path is kind of like a maze, right? Um, but I have spent the last 16 years in education. So um, teaching art education, um, fine arts, language arts, language acquisitions, um, and then going into administration, being a curriculum specialist kind of all over the place. And I've always been an advocate of women in wellness. And I think that comes from, my mom was a public school teacher in Mississippi. Um, My parents separated when I was 10. So she was a single mom of three kids going back to graduate school so she could earn enough money to pay the bills and working full-time as a teacher. And so I think at the age of 10, my eyes were wide open to um, gender expectations, gender pay, you know, a lot of the things that when I talk to grown, educated women, they say, oh, I had never thought of that before. Um, and I'm not sure why that is, but I know, like, I didn't, I, I didn't really have an option to look away, right, to, when, when yeah. it happened to us. So um, recently, um, I really kind of dug into research on wellness specific to teachers and education. It started when I decided late in my career to have a family. And it turned my world upside down with what I was expected to do as a working professional and what I was expected to do as a mom and what I was expected to do as a wife. And to be honest, it just, it was the impossible. And that's why I think in Alberta, like we're back to 1984 employment rates of women because we are being asked to do what is impossible and for less money. (laughs) 
than men. Um, so last year, it was actually a year ago, uh, last summer, I announced my resignation from the Calgary school board that I was working with because it's okay. She'll log back in. Okay. Because I just, um, again, I was being asked to do 40 hours of work within a 24 hour day and something mm-hmm. had to give. So I, my background, like I said, is in art and writing since the age of, you know, nine, I was painting and writing. So this is not something that's been new, but I did recently just last month, um, publish my first novel city hall, which talks about, guess what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> systemic gender issues with professional women and systemic mm-hmm. gender issues with expectations of mom and dads. So it's also a mystery. It's, you know, it's supposed to be fun and lighthearted and it is fun and lighthearted, but it does touch on some of those, those issues as well. I want to share something with our audience because I have a lot of people online uh, come at me about being an angry woman. You're such an angry woman. I am mad. I've been mad since the day this government was elected. And that's not because they're conservatives. And it's not because I wasn't willing to give them a chance. From the day this government came to power, they have come for my kid at every turn. It started with rolling back her rights as an LGBTQ2 teen, as I've stated uh, publicly, my daughter's trans mask, she's uh, non-binary. And what they did with the GSAs ensured that my daughter and other children like her will think twice about forming GSAs in their school for fear. My daughter's not afraid of being outed. She's out and proud. She's afraid of other kids getting outed. She's afraid of what it will do to them in their home lives. So that was the first thing they did to my kid. Then they messed with her, her meds. As I've stated, my daughter has an immunodeficiency disease. She has severe ulcerative colitis and requires treatment for that at the hospital once a month, likely for the rest of her life. To save a few bucks, they decided they were going to mess with her meds and go to generics instead of the brand that literally saved her life. This treatment saved my daughter's life. Then they cut health care. Then they cut public education. Then they cut post-secondary education. At every turn, this government has come for my kid. And while they've done that, they've given us this usual rhetoric about leaving debt for our children and what a sin it is and what a crime it is when they're destroying my daughter's future with every cut with every new legislation, we need to act on that anger. Because ladies, welcome to Gilead. One of the issues you brought up in your article, and for our audience, it's entitled, Women in Alberta Are Not Grateful. I highly recommend it. Deirdre will add a link to the podcast once we post it and uh, it should be required reading not just in Alberta but across Canada because we are seeing this trend in a lot of provinces where there are conservative premiers this uh, you know women only work for pin money sort of attitude and that our true place is still in the home and in the kitchen and we can come out of the kitchen but only if the men need us to cover a few bills now and then or if the kids have gone off to college and we want money for new shoes or something 
like that. But one of the the interesting points you brought up is that uh, our government here in Alberta continues to pour money into the oil and gas industry. And I mean, pour, pour. They have turned the hose on full blast and are just letting it rush in there. And the, the workforce in that industry is, I believe the, the number and citation you used, Lisa, was 88% mm-hmm. men. In the meantime, nursing and teaching and uh, healthcare, everything else this government has decided to cut is the reverse. It's mostly women in those roles. And so we're, we're seeing this constant, you know, support for male dominated industries and fields, constant funding. And in the meantime, the, the women are being not only told to take less money for often more work, because let's not forget, we're coming out of a pandemic And we don't even know yet the effect and the cost of long-haul COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got a government that's talking about rolling back nurses. They've already cut money from healthcare, and they don't even know yet how much healthcare is going to cost on a go-forward basis or how much more resources are going to be needed as we come out of this pandemic. Why do you think uh, governments are so quick, so eager, really, it's not even just quick, it's eager to cut in industries and uh, professional public servant areas where women will be the most affected. Why do you think that's still okay? I mean, it's 2021. So what's going on? I think they do it because they know they can. Uh I've watched my husband negotiate with his own salary. He's a man. <laughs> so just you know, uh, I've watched how he negotiates, you know, additional work that he's asked to take on, whether it's contract work, um, work outside of you know his place of employment, and he will he will walk away stated. And so, right. Kathleen, that's you know for me it goes back to the home. Yes, and I talk about mentioned in the book burnout that it's an excellent book is written by Emily Nagotsky and Amelia Nagotsky um, from birth. We're teaching our sons and daughters to console a child. It's the woman's job to work 40 hours a week and then to do the 17.5 additional hours of unpaid work over and above what her male counterpart is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're putting that in there so that when the government says, oh, you know, teachers, we're not going to give you a pay increase for 20 years or, you know, yeah. we're going to increase your class sizes and we're going to take away educational assistance. And the complexities are even more and more in your classroom with the needs of your students and nurses. You went through a pandemic and we're now going to, you know, talk about rolling back your salary 3%. We have been conditioned. And it's, it's really fascinating because Kathleen, you talked about, let's be angry. Let's be angry women. Um, I feel like we have to talk about um, a really good point. And it was so serendipitous. I listened to a podcast episode by Glennon Doyle. So Glennon Doyle is an American author activist. She's a founder and president of Together Rising, a nonprofit organization. And she does a lot of talk um, 
about the messages we're sending women. And I had just listened to it like days before that announcement was made. And she says, we have to understand that as women, we are programmed to feel about an inch range of emotions. It is acceptable for us as women to be grateful, it is acceptable for us to be giving, it is acceptable for us to be selfless. And how horrible of a word is that? Selfless. You giving, yes. you have no self left. And when we are anything beyond that very limited range of emotions, when we're angry, when we're ambitious, when we're burnt out, when we're tired, we're told, and she used, I think this exact word, we're told we're crazy. Yes. Every time. Every and, time. And, out and of I, control. And I think, out of control. Yeah. And I think Travis Taos, am I saying Travis? Taves. Yeah. Taves. Travis knows that. He knows that. And that's why in the same interview, he can say, thank you very much. Pat on the back. Well done, nurses. We're cutting your salary or we're, that's our, that's our goal. And be glad to have a job. He knows that. Like he's not listening to Glennon Doyle. He's not reading, you know, Emily and Amelia Nagotsky, but he lives in a society where we know that. And so yeah. I think governments know how to really capitalize on that. And not, and not just government institutions, school yes. districts, right? Universities. So yeah, that, that's why I think they do it. I was thinking last night, there's also a generational aspect to it as well. Uh, one, of, one of the trends that has finally received a lot of backlash has been unpaid internships. And I've had a lot of women friends who have taken unpaid internships, not men, mostly women who've taken those unpaid internships because they feel as though that at least gives them a foot in the door. And that's the only foot in the door they're going to get is by working for free. It made me think a lot about uh, growing up as a Gen Xer and this focus there was on women to volunteer and what a huge trend that was through the 80s and into the 90s that we weren't only supposed to be you know, working, taking care of our families, taking care of ourselves, then we're supposed to go work for free, which was really a, a training ground for this idea of women constantly doing unpaid work. It's something that's been ingrained in us pretty much from the time we're old enough to be told what to do. So how do we come back from that? How do we uh, push back against not just a government, but a society that expects more from and more from us and puts the burden on us to not only fix the problems, but to be the burden bearers for all the problem. Yep. Um, and I, I go back to the first thing I think is that women, and I am, I'm saying, I think women need to do this first step is they need to, they need to recognize it. Like so many times we're running around the house doing unpaid work, doing what, um, Canadian researchers called simultaneous performance. So we're watching the kids and we're throwing laundry in and we're not even recognizing it's happening. Um, a lot of women um, have talked to me and have shared to me 
um, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out, I'm I'm going crazy, my anxiety's through the roof, you know, which I've all experienced, I've, I've experienced, I think so many of us have experienced, I think it's to understand why. And so when we're asked to do this unpaid work or, or when we're asked to work more professionally for less, we can say, oh, I, I recognize it. Um, and then the second one is, is to really start to have conversations like, I've been married for 13 years and we've had 13 years of discussions as a couple about how things naturally fall um, onto my, my shoulders because that's how my parents did it and that's how his parents did it. And so there has to be constant communication as to, to rewriting the script. Another thing I would say, Kathleen, is for everyone, men, women, young, old, <laughs> left, right, wherever you are, is to start getting in touch with your biases, because I think we're all walking around um, on various levels of gender biases. If you were born on earth, <laughs> if you have <laughs> lived on this planet, um, well, let's talk about, you know, like in Canada, like you have seen for most of your life, men running the country. Yes. And so when a woman politician throws her hat in the race, um, all of a sudden these, as humans, as how we're conditioned, like we're comfortable with the familiar, right? Mm -hmm. We feel safe with the familiar. So if someone um, who is female or someone who isn't a white man throws their hat in, all of a sudden these alarm bells go off and we're like, well, what are they about? Well, what are their qualifications? And mm -hmm. so I think Kathleen, before we vote, um, we have a lot of um, municipal elections happening in October. Of course we have the big election in 2023 we really need to sit down and to say like, how has me never seeing a female mayor in Calgary in 134 years affecting how I think about who's a qualified candidate. So, you know, first of all, recognize it, women have conversations. That's again, that is for the women to start having with their partners, having with their sons, having with their daughters. And then for everyone, um, start checking your biases because I have done yeah. research. I have an aunt who has spent her life to researching gender inequity. I have spent years researching it and I'm still biased and I know that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that a lot of speaking of, you know, Twitter, a lot of people are like, well, I'll vote for the most qualified candidate. Well, no, you won't. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Unless you, you know, what yeah. is qualified to you. Um, right. And so I, I've really checked yourself. Yeah. I've noticed too that uh, in the year of our Lord, 2021, there's still a lot of men online who say, well, I'm never voting for a woman for premier again, because I didn't like the, the last one we had, or I didn't like the woman premier we had before her. You never hear that about men. You never, ever hear someone say, <laughs> because what would well, they I'm not voting do? for <laughs> I'm not voting for a man again because I sure didn't like Stephen Harper. I, that's that's <laughs> the inequality people don't even stop to think about. And when you point out the sexism of that, I'm constantly amazed that the person who uttered it or typed it is blind to the sexism of it. Mm -hmm. I, and it, they're sincere. Well, it's, how can I be a sexist if I voted for the woman? Okay, but now you're saying that's why you'll never vote for a woman again. <laughs> that's kind of sexist. And it's still not computing. And I, I do think it's, I, I don't, Alberta is my home and I don't like to constantly dump on this province. But I do think that it's, 
it's more amplified in Alberta too. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if that's because this is a province where uh, the ruralites, the, the right-wing Christian ruralites still hold the balance of power in this province, in our, in our elections, in our legislation, With in their our 17% policy. population. Right. And yet they hold the balance of power. And there is a culture that is unique to those areas. Um, maybe unique's not the word. Maybe it's just a, a different world from the way that urbanites exist. Yeah. It's just a different world. And that balance of power has consistently fed the inequity and, in, and inequality in Alberta. In That's the impression I get of it, that by by placing all the power in areas of the province that aren't necessarily, I don't want to use the word progressive, aren't necessarily reflective. as aware and reflective as urban centers, we will consistently be in a position of making women and racialized persons for that matter, and especially racialized women, the burden bearers for policy and legislation. Now, am I just being crazy or are we all seeing that? (laughs) Well, and I think it's, it's also that awareness, right? I talk about this all the time, how the way that I view things, the immediacy with which I see that something that this is wrong and Mm -hmm. why it's wrong is because of the fact that, okay, one sec, dude, I'm recording. Go, 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 go. This is, that fits in with exactly what we're talking about. And I think she should leave it in for the podcast. You need to leave that in because that is exactly what women everywhere are dealing with, right? That was perfect. Thank the Um, kid for me. I will. so, so I just went through this yesterday um, on on this Facebook this Facebook page, a local one here in Strathmore, and it's a particularly um, vicious one, right? And so it the the comment or so the original meme was about Justin Trudeau being Castro's son or whatever, right? And, <laughs> oh, we want a DNA test. And, My favorite anyways, conspiracy theory. Right. But I, but I threw, I threw this comment in and I said, you know that the sins of the father and mother are only applied in rural. <laughs> well, but like, it just, it hit me. I'm like, this is a thing in rural, right? Your family name, your sisters, your parents, like, this is something that that people ask. And and actually, you know, I remember meeting uh, the parents of of a guy that I was dating. And, you know, his dad was just, so who's your dad? Well, you don't know my dad, right? Like, how does this matter? But it's a, but it is something, right? Who is your family? What's your, what's your bloodline almost? And, Yet that's something that people are able to get away from in cities. Yeah. Right? You well, don't find and that, people asking those questions. That leads me to something that Deirdre and I have been focused on. Um, well, at least in the time that I've been co-hosting with the <laughs> podcast, because Deirdre's been doing this a lot longer than I've been here. One of the things we've really tried to focus on is reaching women in those rural areas. Because I 
I still feel as though feminism has forgotten them. And we, you know, it's, it's very convenient for progressive intersectional feminists to say, well, those women reject us. I don't think that's the case. No, they haven't in most, in most situations, they haven't really had the chance to reject us because there is a, a, an isolation that happens to women in those areas. And they may not feel that isolation, but their world is very confined, right? And I, I don't know, uh, well, Deirdre lives in a small town now. And I grew up in a um, small town, 2,200 people. At least I don't know if, if you have much experience with small towns. I've lived in small towns and I've, I've lived in big cities. Mississippi's and, probably a whole other experience though but, too. <laughs> but small yeah small small towns uh they're different small well but they're also very homogenous yeah uh when you they're exist in a small knit. town they're close-knit and these families know each other for generations and mostly everyone thinks the same there's a reason why a lot of my LGBTQ2 friends uh, consider themselves small town escapees, right? Because they can be anonymous in the city, but they couldn't even exist in small towns. So how do we reach out to women in those areas? How do we let them know we see them and we hear them? And we're not rejecting them and feminism hasn't rejected them because I think we're failing at doing that. And I think it's, it's something we need to focus on when we talk about intersectional feminism, that it's not just saying, you know, women of color as well and uh, transgender. And it's not just that we're leaving out women in rural areas. So how do we reach out to them and empower them? Where do we start? An amazing question. I've never been asked that. Um, I can share you. I can share with you a little bit of my own lived experience. So, <clears throat> I um I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. So Jackson's the capital of Mississippi. But I think at the time it was around 150,000 people, maybe a little less. And I did attend a public high school um, outside of Jackson. So it was very much a small town, and. I know what it's like. I think um, my father's side of the family was six generations um, in Mississippi. So my last name was very well known. And I just had a feeling, and I'm gonna say this, Mississippi, there is amazing like beauty in Mississippi. A lot of my love for literature and the arts came from, you know, the very rich um, culture that, that that's a part of Mississippi. So I'm not, I am not, by any means knocking it, but I knew that with my mom, with my dad, as a white upper middle-class woman, I had my life planned out for me. I would attend the University of Mississippi or Mississippi State. I would join a sorority. I would get married. I would have kids early. And then that was kind of it. (laughs) And so I, and I am speaking from a, a, sorry, I'm speaking from a place of immense privilege and that I literally, when I 
graduated high school, packed two suitcases, got on a plane by myself and, and left because I, I said, I, I cannot, I can't do this. I cannot mm-hmm. be, you know, Lisa Bush and, and, and continue to kind of fulfill what has already been planned out for me. I would say like 99.9% of women in small towns don't have the financial capabilities, don't have, you know, maybe the, the mental um, supports. And although my family wasn't too terribly thrilled about my decision at the time. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> so I think, you know, whether we're talking about feminism um, with women in small towns, um, with newcomer women, because I'm an immigrant to Canada myself, I think we need to do a lot of listening. Um, and that's kind of, I think we need to, to say, well, what, where, where are you coming from? Like, tell me what are, what are your challenges? Because I can think right now, like the first thing, if I was talking to someone in rural Alberta, I would just be like, tell me your story. Like, what, what are, what are you expected? What, um, what, what do you want? Um, because not, not all women want the same, do you know, I mean, I'm, I think we all want this to be treated equal and to be able to, to work and get paid and and sleep or, you know, the basic wellness. Um, but like, what, what do you want? So I would say the first thing is listen, listen to, to women, um, living in rural Alberta stories. I'm American. And one thing that like, I've really forced myself to do is to listen to some of my more conservative relatives or listen to some more of my conservative um, friends and, and say, tell me your perspective. Like, why are you, why are you thinking that way? I think right now we've gotten so polarized where it's, mm-hmm. you know, my way, or I'm walking in, out the, of the room and shutting the door. So maybe just listening. And, and I think we probably have a little bit of learning to do as feminists. Yeah. I, and I think not, uh, not being disdainful of their choices as well. I think it's important we understand that as feminists. There are women who like to bake pies. There are women who like to take care of their homes and take care of their partners and take care of their children. That is what they really want. And we need to stop shitting on it. Mm -hmm. And we need to accept that that work is valuable. Because when... When we're dismissive of those women, when we say things like, um, oh, it's Stockholm Syndrome. They just have Stockholm Syndrome. We're diminishing their work. Well, at the same time, we're, we're screaming at the top of our lungs that women's work should be recognized. <laughs> right. So maybe let's stop doing that to rural women. And maybe let's, you know, focus more on what we have in common and how we stand with them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, and you know, I've been guilty of it too. I'm seeing a lot of more progressive urbanite women online demanding, demanding that rural women stand with us. We're mad. Why don't you have our backs? When have we stood with them? Oh, yeah. for sure. When have we stood with them? And if we really want to, uh, to, put up a wall against this government and what they're doing to women, which is horrible and awful, no matter how they try to spin it. We have got to be willing to take down a few of our own walls in the process and, you know, reach over the rubble and 
shake a sister's hand and let's get on with it together. At the end of the book, Burnout, because <laughs> we talk about give and give and give and give, there is this surprising and beautiful and amazing conclusion. I'm going to ruin, I'm not going to ruin the book. It's a nonfiction <laughs> book. You learn tons. If you read <laughs> the conclusion of the two writers was not, we need to stop giving. We need to stop taking care of the elderly. We need to stop taking care of kids. We need to stop taking care of our homes and creating a beautiful space for us and our, you know, our families to live in. They said that we all need to be human givers. So we need Jason Kenny to give, <laughs> you know, yes. we need the, in, the field of engineering that's highly male dominated or energy to say, Hey, we're willing to whatever, like I'm not a policy analysis. I don't know, but right. we're, what we need is not for us to abandon our kids and just to drop the unpaid work altogether. We need our partners and our brothers and our uncles and our grandfathers to say, I'm going to scrub the toilets so that you can go to your job interview. We all need to give. And I think that, like, if you look at it from that perspective, um, it doesn't become a, this angry, bitter war anymore. It becomes a, like a humanitarian crisis. Like yes. we have 50% of the population that's expected to give. So I just kind of wanted to leave that thought because that was a game changer. Mm -hmm.